right, thank you, and good morning to everyone. Welcome. It's great to see you, as always. Uh, we're uh, continuing our series, The Love Command, and we just started this last week, and, and what we're trying to do is look at all these different aspects, all these different dimensions of the call to love each other in the New Testament. And so this morning, we're, we're going to begin to consider an important question, and one that, obviously, it's really going to take us this whole series uh, to get a look at, but just this idea of how do we obey this command? How do we do it? What does it look like in real life? And these are obviously really important questions. Uh, one of my strongest memories from my childhood took place uh, on the playground in fourth grade. Uh, being fourth graders, all of us boys, we, we, we played kickball, we played soccer, all these games that involved being able to kick a ball really hard. And there was this kid in our class named Lawrence who really, really wanted to be good at kicking. He wanted to be one of the guys. So anyway, one day he, he comes to school and he's just got this like confidence about him. Walks out to the playground with a spring in his step. He tells us he's got the secret to kicking hard. So we're playing something, I don't remember what it was, and he goes to kick the ball, he makes contact. And almost immediately he falls down and you can tell his, his foot is kind of hurting. So we all run over like, hey Lawrence, what's wrong? He takes off his shoe and out falls four AA batteries that he had stuffed into his shoe. Apparently, he thought that somehow these batteries would, would power up his shoes or his foot or something. I was talking to Alyssa about it. She was, she was there too. And she says, no, no, no. He just thought it was the weight. And I said, no, I remember this. We made fun of him for the next 10 years about this. He thought it was the electricity. Well, anyway, this illustrates a very simple but important point. If you want to get better at something, if you want to do something well, you have to have the right foundation. You have to have the right source. The source for kicking power is not voltage, right? We know that. And in the same way, loving well, growing in love, it requires the right foundation. And so today we're going to turn to the love command from the book of Galatians where this idea of foundation is, is really laid for us. And in Galatians, the Apostle Paul gives us some really great practical guidance for, for loving people well, and we're going to talk about this. We're going to understand a little bit about what, what love should look like. But I think even more important than that is this foundation that Paul lays here. Before Paul gets into any practical stuff, he wants to make sure we understand where does love come from. What do we need to believe and experience before we can truly love other, others well, before we can love others the way Jesus loved us? I think, honestly, Paul wants us to take out the batteries out of our shoes before we go out to the kickball game. Make sure we don't have the wrong foundation. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And Galatians is a really interesting letter. We're going to talk a lot about it. But Paul is writing to a specific church with a very specific set of problems. And really, at the root of this problem was a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. What does the gospel mean, and what does it mean for how we live, and especially how we love others? And so we're going to see kind of how this love command fits into this very real situation. So we're going to be in uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. 
For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may be caught and you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So like I said, there's some really good practical stuff here in thinking about how to love other people, and I promise we're going to come back to that. But what we need to do first is to flesh out the foundation, flesh out kind of all this stuff that comes before what we read in Galatians chapter 5. And this is going to take us a little bit of time. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening here, so just remember we're going to come back to some of this practical stuff later. But we need to answer this question. What is the situation Paul is addressing? And how is it affecting the Galatians' ability to love? So let's start there. And to answer those questions, let's go back to verse 13. Just this very beginning, this call to love. Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. So what we see here is that Paul's call to love comes up in this larger context of a discussion about freedom. And this is really at the center of the, a big gospel problem that's happening in Galatia. Now when you think about freedom, what comes to mind? What do you think of? Try to imagine freedom in your head. What would it look like for you to be free? What would you feel? What would that experience be like? Now, I think there's a lot of ways to think about freedom, but I think probably if you're thinking about something, you're either thinking about one of two things, one of two different types of freedom. First is freedom from something, right? So we think about freedom from some kind of prison or oppression, maybe tyranny. You might think of the 4th of July or, or Independence Day, uh, our freedom. Maybe you think of the end of Braveheart with Mel Gibson yelling, freedom from Scottish rule could be freedom from anything, though, right? Freedom on a summer break when you were a kid, that first day of summer when you didn't have to go to school, you didn't have to listen to your teachers. Maybe you've experienced freedom from a diet where you can just eat whatever you want to. Maybe for you, freedom is that feeling after service when you can finally take out your phone and check your fantasy football team. Is that just me? No, that's how I feel like freedom is. But freedom, in a lot of ways, is a lot of times is from something. 
There's another type of freedom, though, that we often think about, a freedom that I think is maybe more of what a lot of people are looking for in our world today, and this is freedom to do what I want. Independence, self-determination, lack of constraint, lack of restriction. So for me to be free, I should be able to do what I want, say what I want, wear what I want, go where I want. Now we're going to talk about both of those types of freedom, and we're going to come back to that second type. But here in Galatians 5, and throughout most of Galatians, Paul is talking about the first type. The idea that freedom in Christ is primarily about freedom from something. And so Paul wants to see that they are, his readers to see that they are free of two different types of slavery. And the first type is slavery from the law. Slavery from the law. And this is, this is really the big issue in Galatians. If you're trying to kind of sum up Galatians in a nutshell, it's this idea of being free from the burden of the law. And really, there, there was these people in, in Galatia, these people in this church who are called the Judaizers. I don't think they called themselves the Judaizers. I think that's what we call them. But they came into this church, and they basically said, in order for you to be a part of this new community, in, in order for you to be a part of the church, the family of God, you need to continue to obey the Mosaic Law. So things like circumcision, uh, dietary restrictions, uh, religious festivals, you had to do all of those things. And they placed kind of this, this burden, this obligation on people. You must, you have to, if you want to belong. And so a big part of Paul's message is saying, no, that's, that's not how the gospel works. This is no gospel at all. You're not under the law. You're not under this burden. You are under grace. So that's the first thing. Freedom from the law. Freedom from slavery to the law. The second type of slavery that Paul wants the Galatians to see is freedom from the flesh or slavery to the flesh. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And he's basically saying if you're free from the law, if you're not under the moral obligation of the Mosaic law, don't go and run out and think you could do whatever you want to. He's saying that's just a different form of slavery. If you do what you want, if you follow your, your passions, your fleshly desires, what's going to end up happening is you become captive to those desires. You feel like you need to do more and more to, to gain more wealth or more pleasure or more status. And he says you end up just experiencing a different form of slavery. Okay? And so when Paul talks about freedom, this is what he means. Don't be a slave to the law. Don't be a slave to the flesh. Okay, so that's kind of our first starting point. And in order to understand the point that Paul really wants to make, we have to recognize kind of the common theme between slavery to the law and slavery to the flesh. Ultimately, what these two forms of slavery have in common is that they are both rooted in a need and a drive for acceptance. A need and a drive for, a for approval. Because when you think about it, it, it doesn't really make that much sense that anyone would choose slavery, right? That, that, that you would go and, and you would add obligation. That you would say, you know what, I want to make faith about doing more stuff. I want to make faith about doing extra. Why would anyone submit themselves to that kind of slavery? 
Also, why would anyone submit themselves to the slavery of the flesh? Something God says, this is bad. This is going to bring horrible problems to your life. This is not what I want from you. Why would we choose to do that? And the Bible tells us that the answer goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they sin, and what do they notice about themselves? They're naked, and they feel shame. And so they begin to cover themselves, to hide, to hide that nakedness, to hide that shame. And so ultimately, law-keeping and fleshliness are, are rooted in kind of the same, just kind of primal need. Without the relationship with the Father, perfect identity in him, we grab at stuff to cover ourselves. So we turn to the law and obedience because we want to prove that we're good. We can point to all these things we do and say, look, I am a good person. I keep these laws. I obey these laws. I do all these good things, so I have value. We turn to worldliness and slavery to the flesh for the same reason. We turn to wealth and status and pleasure, and we say, look, I'm a good person because of this. Look at all of my accomplishments. Look at how many people like me. Look at all this stuff that I do. I have value because of this. And the Bible tells us that both of these pathways are slavery, and they lead us to just feeling miserable. We have this constant need, this drive to, to get more, and we never feel satisfied, so we live in fear and anxiety and worry, and we're ultra-sensitive and mistrusting. We feel guilty. We're discouraged, and we're left feeling insecure. So this kind of brings us to the main point of Galatians. What Paul really wants to say about the gospel, what he wants us to understand because of this tendency we have towards slavery to the law or slavery to the flesh, Paul's main point, he says this as clearly as, the, as he can, the gospel, Jesus has set you free from those kinds of slavery. He set you free from this way of living, from this need for approval and acceptance. Galatians 3.26 says, So you in Christ Jesus are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Okay, so think about the imagery, right? In light of our shame and our nakedness, he's saying you're, you're clothed with Christ. You're a part of a family. You're, you're heirs. You're children. You are accepted. You're loved. You have value. And so you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to cover yourself. I remember reading a story about Christian author Henry Nouwen, and he talks about this period of his life when he went to go live with um, mentally challenged adults, and he spent a fair amount of time with them. And he talked about how strange it was, this experience of being with these people who just completely were not impressed by anything he had done, any of his accomplishments. So they didn't care about all of his uh, doctorates, all of his job titles, all the books he had written. They didn't care about all the people he knew or the universities he had taught at. They didn't care about what he looked like or what he wore. All they really cared about was that he was there. He says the question that they asked most often was simply, Henry, are you home? And he says this experience was so important. It was so freeing because ultimately it led him to let go of this need to be relevant. And knowing Jesus is a little bit like this, but it's much better. 
It's not that Jesus doesn't care or doesn't notice what we've done. It's simply that he's already decided how much he loves us, how much he likes us, how pleased he is with us. And so there is freedom in the ability to let go in the presence of Jesus. There's freedom, not because of our accomplishments, not because of the fact of the things we do, not because that doesn't matter, but because they're not needed. And so this is the freedom that Paul is talking about. This is the freedom he wants us to experience. This is the freedom Jesus gives to us. Not that we're free to do whatever we want to, but free to let go. Free to let go of the striving, free to let go of the need to cover ourselves, to working so hard all the time with all of this energy to make ourselves look good, to make ourselves feel valuable. And so that kind of brings us back to Galatians 5. And we can begin to take this whole gospel foundation, I know that was a lot, and, and apply it to the love command. Because what Paul wants the Galatians to think about in chapter 5 is, okay, if you're free, if you've experienced this freedom, how should you live? What does it mean to live in freedom? What does it mean to go out and walk around and be freed from this burden of proving yourself? He says, here's what it looks like. One sentence, serve one another humbly in love. This is the way Paul de defines love for neighbor is to realize that because you are free, because you have been set free, you now can use your freedom for the good of someone else. And I think sometimes we think about this idea, or we read a passage like this, and it feels like kind of like a contradiction. You are free. Go be a servant. You are free. Go serve. Go put yourself under another person. And you might think, you know, that's not freedom. Right? If I'm free, I should be able to do what I want. I shouldn't be doing something for someone else. And this is the point Paul is building throughout Galatians, that freedom to do what you want is not possible. It is tainted by sin, by our broken desires. If you do what you want, you'll end up miserable. What Paul wants us to embrace, what he wants us to recognize, that real freedom is for you to be who you are. Freedom is not what to do what you want. It's to be who you are, to be who God made you to be, to be genuinely a new creation in Christ. Freedom to get out of this prison of having to prove ourselves and experiencing the joy and fulfillment of blessing others. It wasn't possible before. It wasn't possible when you were a slave to the sin. It wasn't possible when you were under the law. But now you know God, and more importantly, he knows you. He's, he's called you his child so you can love. And so with that established, again, I know that's a lot. But Paul can really begin to unpack this question and this, this thing that we're wrestling with as well. If we're free, and if we're free to love, love other people, what should we do? 
How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? And I think in our passage, Paul gives us, you know, a bunch of different things, and there's a bunch that we could pull out, but I want to identify three really practical exhortations because I think this is really kind of building on Paul's idea of being free. And the first thing is this, carry each other's burdens. As we think about what does it mean to love each other in real life, what does it mean to be free to love? It is to carry someone else's burden. This is the heart of loving your neighbor. Paul says this is how we fulfill the law of Christ. And the idea here is simple. Again, it's to live for the good of someone else. As we are freed from the burden of sin and shame, we try to pick up someone else's burden and help them to carry it. Uh, Our small group right now is going through a study by uh, Pastor Andy Stanley, and we've been talking about this idea of loving our our families, of mutual submission in the family. And I'm going to shamelessly steal an idea from Andy Stanley because I think it's, it's so good. But as he talks about loving each other, as he talks about doing this in our family, he says that there's kind of a question that we can ask each other that really expresses this idea of carrying someone else's burden, of submitting, of serving someone else. And it's really simple, it's really basic, but it's so powerful. How can I help? How can I help you right now? How can I help you today? And it's a simple question, but think about how powerful this is and what it communicates. How can I use, how can I leverage my power, my energy, my time, my abilities? How can I use that to help you? How can I use that to meet your needs, to help you carry whatever it is you're struggling to carry? And so in our group, kind of our our take home from that was uh, to use that question ask it in our families, to ask our spouses, how can I help you? Ask our kids, how can I help you? Maybe even get our kids to ask us, how can I help you? I don't know how that's going for the rest of the group. It's not really going great for us. But I think it's such a good practice to ask people in your life, how can I help? And it's not something that applies just to family. It, It can apply anywhere. And what what Paul is saying in in Galatians 6 is he's primarily looking at what do relationships in the body of Christ look like? What do relationships look like in the family of God? And so this same principle that we would apply to our immediate nuclear families, how can I help? That's what we can bring, especially to our relationships here with each other. And, you know, here's what I found as as I've been doing this. I I found, especially uh, in my relationship with Alyssa, that asking the question itself, saying it out loud, is kind of challenging for a lot of reasons. It just feels kind of awkward to say, how can I help? Uh, We're both trying to do it. But what's been actually even better than saying out loud, how can I help, is thinking that all the time, is having that be the mindset, the thought process that drives my relationship with Alyssa, that drives how I view what I do when I get home from work, what I do when I'm tired, what I, what I do when I want to do something for myself, is there's always in the back of my mind, oh yeah, wait, real quick, is there anything I can do for Alyssa? It might be something small, like just put a couple dishes in the dishwasher. It might be something big, like just see how her day is going. But what's ended up happening is, is by thinking about that question, 
It's completely changed the pattern of behavior in our marriage. And what's cool about that is, is that she's thinking the same thing because she's been in this study and she's trying to think about my needs. And what we found this past couple weeks is that there's been kind of this kind of arms race of helpfulness, of like, I'm trying to help her and she sees that. She's like, oh man, like, like, and she's looking for ways to help me. And it's not fake. It's not forced. It's not like, oh, I have to beat her at helping. But it's, oh my gosh, like, I'm so appreciative of her. And she's caring for me so deeply. What can I do next? We actually had like kind of a fake argument the other day about who was going to get the kids snack for them. No, I'll get the goldfish. You go ahead and say, no, 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 let me get the goldfish. These are the kinds of things that happen when we come together with that kind of attitude. And what Paul is saying, in the same way that that can happen in your family at home, this is a picture of what relationships in the body of Christ can look like, this kind of arms race of helpfulness. That as we are meeting each other's needs, as I'm meeting your needs, you're looking out for my needs, and we carry each other's burdens. I think this works in the outside world as well. Wherever we go, a simple, tangible, achievable way of showing love to people. Wherever you are, at work, out and about in your relationships, even if you know the other person isn't thinking this about you, to be, to be so filled with love and, and the grace of Jesus that we would be able to say to everyone, how can I help or think about every relationship through that lens? How can I carry your burdens? How can I help? Well, second thing Paul talks about, second practical thing is, let us not become conceited. Now, whenever I read that verse, I don't know why. Well, I think I do know why. I, I kind of skip over it. And I think conceited is one of those words that we don't like applying to ourselves. Like, it would be easy for me to say, yeah, you know, I, I really struggle with pride. You know, I can be selfish sometimes. But I don't know. I don't think I've ever said I'm really conceited. That sounds ugly. Somehow that sounds worse to me. But the context here, the, the, Paul, the word that Paul uses, it literally just means empty of honor. I think that's really interesting. This is where we get the word vainglorious. It's almost this idea that we feel this lack of honor. We sense this emptiness of, of honor, of worth, of value, of glory. And so we go out and we go out into the world and we try to get some. That's kind of the root of being conceited. What it's really about is this deep insecurity and this desire, again, to prove ourselves. And so what Paul is saying here is don't go back to this old way of living, to this slavery, to acceptance, to approval, because ultimately this is one of the biggest obstacles to loving, to asking how can I help, to being for other people. Tim Keller describes this experience as being honor-hungry. Honor-hungry. I think that's such a good way of describing it because it helps us to think about, helps us to bring to life this experience of conceit. It's like we just have this urge, this desire in us, like how we feel when we're hungry, for people to like us, for people to accept us, for people to honor us. 
Paul says this leads to two different things. We either provoke each other or we envy. The word provoke is like to challenge someone to a contest, to enter into a competition, he's saying, right? When, when we are empty of honor, when we're honor hungry, what do we do? We compare each other. We compare ourselves to other people. We think about, well, how do I measure up? Am I getting enough honor relative to this person? Am I doing enough? Am I acting the right way? Am I wearing the right thing? Do I make enough money? We provoke. Or we envy. It's a little more passive. We spend our time wanting. We lust after what other people have. And again, think about how damaging honor hunger is to how can I help. How damaging honor hunger is to a heart that says, let me carry your burden. Because if you're competing with someone for honor, for value, if they're your competition, you're never going to want to help them because they have what you want. Or maybe it impacts the way we view people. I think especially those closest to us. We don't do this on purpose, but sometimes we end up using the people in our lives to satisfy our honor hunger. I think this happens a lot with our kids. We think about how what they say and do reflects on us. So much of our frustration with them, so much of our, our pushing them, so much of how we view how they do in school, how they do in sports is, is not really about them, but it's about how does it make me look. This honor hunger creates exhaustion. It makes us work and work and work to accomplish and achieve. And so we're tired physically, mentally, emotionally, and relationally so that when it comes time to carry someone else's burden, we have no strength left. Here's a really insidious thing. Honor hunger can taint the way we love people. Even sometimes we do things that are loving. We do things that, that are kind. We do carry each other's burdens, but we do it so that we'll be accepted, so that we'll be liked, so that people will give us what we're looking for. And what usually ends up happening eventually is we don't get the appreciation we're looking for. We don't get the recognition we want. We, we feel bitter and resentful. Relationships blow up because we love for ourselves, not for others. Honor hunger makes it hard to be loving. It's kind of like those um, Snickers commercials. These are the ones I'm talking about. You're not you when you're hungry. You turn into this like grouchy, mean person. Like there's all these grouchy actors like Danny DeVito or Danny Trejo or I don't know all these people who are known for being kind of gruff. And it's like you're not you and you're hungry. You need a Snickers. Well, the same is true. You are not you when you're honor hungry. It changes you. It changes the way you view people. It changes the way you go about your life. It's hard to be free. It's hard to be for people. It's hard to experience freedom when we do this. And so one of the things, one of the practical things that we can do is just consider, how does honor hunger affect me? How does it affect me specifically? Where do I look for acceptance? Where do I look for approval? And how does it affect how I interact with other people? 
Where am I honor hungry? Maybe you're really insecure about your looks, about how you look, and so you have a tendency to be a little bit extra judgmental of people who look really nice or, or dress well or seem to be putting in a little extra effort to how they look. You think, and that person's so shallow. Maybe you wish other people would praise you more. You need encouragement. You want people to say nice things for you. So, so when other people do good things, you don't, you don't hand out any praise. You don't encourage because you're looking at it for yourself. Maybe you view time as precious because you want to do so much with it, because you need it to accomplish and achieve. And so the idea of using your time for someone else's honor seems pointless. We're all honor-hungry in some ways. It's normal. It's part of our sinfulness, our brokenness. And the idea isn't that you're never... You should never, ever be honor-hungry. It's just to, to, to understand it, to be aware of it, and to address it. And that brings us to our final point this morning, our last exhortation for experiencing freedom and love, and that is walk by the Spirit. Now, I saved this for last because it's probably the least specific. It's maybe the least practical, but it's for sure the most important. Because before you do anything else, what we need to understand, what we need to understand about the source, the foundation of love for people, is you need help. You cannot do this on your own. Right? I mean, if we're learning anything so far in this series, it's that loving people is hard. And it's hard to carry other people's burdens. It sounds easy in theory. Sure, it's easy to wash a couple of dishes or to pour a bowl of goldfish, but man, with all of our lives, with our time, when we're tired, when we're exhausted, to really carry a heavy burden for someone is hard. It's hard to believe that we are accepted and loved enough to where we don't have to strive, where we don't have to try to cover ourselves. And so this is really why, this is why this is at the heart of, of Paul's point. The heart of Galatians is that you can't do this by trying. You can't do this by, by just saying, be a better person, be more loving, be less selfish. But we need the love of Christ. We need the person of Jesus. We need who he is and what he says about us to flow into us, to flow through us. We need to experience in a real, tangible way that we are a child of God. Not just intellectually, but personally, internally, emotionally. That we are accepted and loved. And so Paul says, walk by the Spirit. One of the main things that the Holy Spirit does for us is to speak this truth, this gospel reality of freedom into our lives. Galatians 4, 6 says that God sent the Spirit into our hearts to remind us that we're children of God. The Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. It speaks to this deep, personal relationship we have with the Father. The Spirit also changes us. Galatians 5 says that the Spirit produces fruit in us. And I love this picture of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not meant to be just a bunch of random virtues. It's a holistic picture of freedom and love. 
If you look at that list again, you'll see that it's a picture of what love looks like when it's free and when it's without our own desires, our own conceit. And so let's take this even a step further. Let's get really practical. We cannot love others if we don't say these words. I need to pray. I, I have to. There, there's no other option. There's no other way of doing it. There's no other way of experiencing this kind of love and acceptance and power and transformation than to spend regular time by the power of the Spirit with the Father. To let him say who we are, to root us in love and to change our hearts. And I think, you know, when we talk about love, this is, this is the easiest step to skip. It's always the thing that we think, oh, I have time for that later, or I'm too busy, or, or, or what does prayer even really matter? God already knows what I'm going to do or not do. That's, no, you need time with me. If for no other reason, then I want you to know how much you're loved. And if we can bank on one thing when we go to scripture, when we come to God in prayer, is that he will speak love and acceptance and grace and change how we view ourselves and others. So I, I say this a lot. I'm wary of, of three-step plans or processes, how to be more loving in three steps. But I do think this passage provides us with three foundational tools. Really, I think th three things that we can't love Without these ideas. And first is this, walk by the Spirit. Pray and know that you're a child of God. Regularly, as much as you can, or as much as we struggle to love other people, we have to be going to God for help. Second, do not be conceited. Be wary of those insecurities. Be wary of the way they affect us, the way they affect how we view people. And finally, as we do that, look for ways to help carry each other's burdens. And for you, this might mean starting really small. <laughs> Pour a bowl of goldfish for someone. Do something easy. But what you find is that the more you do it, the more you serve out of freedom, the more you experience joy in that, the more love you're going to want to experience. And so I think this process, when we, when we look at it, it's a reminder of, of something really important. It's that love is not something that's foreign to you. It's not something that's unnatural. It's not something that you could ever say, hey, I'm, I'm just not good at this. I can't do this. I'm not a loving person. What this process reminds us of, what Galatians reminds us of is, no, you, you are a loving person. You are made to be loving. This is the freedom that Jesus set you free to experience. And so lean in to the Spirit. Lean to love. Because there's joy there. Because there's freedom. Now, let's pray together.